Hello, this is David Gibson. I'm at the Ecological Society of America meetings in Louisville, and I'm joined today by Ian Stott, who's an associate editor for the Journal of Ecology. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thank you very much. So we're going to have a short chat, uh, a bit about your background and what you do and that sort of thing. So uh, tell us a little bit about your ecological background. So I kind of ended up in ecology by accident, I suppose. Um, I wanted to be a vet when I was younger. Oh. <laughs> Since I was like five years old, you know. I did all the work experience and I um, did uh, all of the right levels, so A-levels being our kind of... Uh, 16 to 18 um, uh, subjects and I found you know I I knew my doubts were growing about it um, and I'd applied as a backup course I'd applied to um, to do this ecology and conservation course at a brand new campus down in Cornwall in the UK Um, and long story short I got into vet school I got offered a place but I realised I was more excited about this ecology course than I had been about vet school, and so I dumped all my plans to be a vet <laughs> um, to, you know, the alarm of my, my teachers and my friends. My parents were really good about it, actually. Yeah. Um, and I went off and I, and I did ecology. And, you know, that's how it all started. Um, I think originally I was more interested in conservation, but I realised that often in conservation you don't have as much data to play with than I had also realised by the end of my undergraduate degree that I really liked playing with data. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I went into ecology with the idea that I'd um, do ecology that hopefully helped conservation causes. Right, okay. Well, that's That's the original plan. (laughs) Yeah, well, we all come into things different ways, and that's that's a good one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So you describe yourself as a computational ecologist. What does that mean? Um, I think I came... Um, to, to that phrase or that idea just as a, a result of being unable to reconcile all the different things that I'd done in my ecological career. So um, I've worked in uh, demography, I've worked in life history evolution, um, I've worked in urban ecology and um, as a sort of stats consultant, I guess, on loads and loads of uh, other projects. But the one thing that kind of um, tied them all together was computation, whether that be statistics, whether that be um, mathematical modelling, stochastic modelling, um, or GIS, things like that. So that's the thing that really tied everything together for me. Mm. Um, so if I'm going to have some kind of identity, I decided, and it wasn't actually very long ago, I decided that that would be the one. Mm. So did you take a lot of stats, math, courses as an undergraduate then? Yeah, so I think that my uni- <laughs> my uh, university was one of the very early ones to uh, to teach R. So I learned R from the age of uh, 19, um, second year undergraduate, we started learning R. Nowadays it's fairly, uh, at least in the UK I guess, it's, it's fairly standard to be teaching um, student statistics with R, but I just loved it. I loved the coding and mm. I loved the statistics. I had always had an affinity for maths, and so um, uh, yeah, I I learned an awful lot early on there, and that's where it all started. Right. Yeah. So I often ask this question of other AEs when we have this this chat. Um, I'm trying to think how you're going to answer this one. So who's inspired you in ecology then? Or in, or in your computational biology yeah. career? Well, I would say, um, and, and this, is, this is almost a very uh, 
get out of the question answer, I suppose. Right. But um, what I really liked as an undergraduate was that um, my lecturers were able to, you know, run a, a course in, in stats or in something extremely theoretical. But then we had a lot of field trips when I was an undergraduate, and they were also able to go out there and get their hands dirty and, you know, really enjoy um, being out in the field. So that's something that I've carried with me the whole way. I still enjoy going out into the field, even if I don't really collect data um, anymore. Um, and I kind of try to remember that that's where it all started for me. It was like you know, mucking around in, mm. um, in the outdoors when I was a kid. So for me, you know, it's those lecturers and also my um, PhD friends, um, just anyone who's able to get really into this kind of more technical computational stuff, but also um, enjoy being in the great outdoors. Okay. So it's not a, an icon, some person, some actually that I would say person. So. No, I think it's very easy to answer those questions with, you know, this wonderful professor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think that a lot of us, even though we may not realize it, are inspired um, equally as much, if not more, by all of those people around us. You know, even if we're a lecturer teaching students, we should be inspired by them as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, you've published quite a decent number of papers now already, and including some in the journal. There's one I want to ask you about. Yeah. Um, it's called Transients Drive the Demographic Dynamics of Plant Populations in Variable Environments. Uh, could you tell us something about that paper? Yeah, so um, very early on, actually, for my undergraduate project, I um, was working with these transient dynamics and at the time they were fairly new and I guess even still now they're fairly new. What does it mean, transient dynamics? So essentially, um, back in, in the day, you know, several decades ago, um, when people were the, uh, around the start of uh, mathematical ecology, we required um, our models to have solutions and those solutions often were equilibria. And that's because equilibria are far easier to uh, calculate, um, far easier to understand um, than anything else. And so a lot of ecological theory is based on this idea that um, ecological systems should be equilibrium. But actually, what I'm really interested in is the interplay between the structure of the population in reality and its kind of theoretical stable structure, because they usually don't match. Hmm. And when they don't match, you get transient dynamics. So in a population, for example, this would be an over-representation of individuals that have, say, high survival and high reproduction. Um, that would result in the population growing faster than you'd expect if it was hmm. stable. Equally, if you had uh, an overrepresentation of individuals with low survival and reproduction, you would end up with a population growing slower. And that's what we call transient dynamics. And these should occur wherever you have um, a, a varying environment, a non-stable environment um, that changes the population structure or that perturbs the population or any other ecological system in some way. I'm of the view that transients are probably um, you know, the presiding dynamics in ecological systems and that we need to understand them better if we're going to understand how ecology works, how evolution works, how we can manage species properly, how we can conserve species. Um, and this paper, um, what we showed was that 
a pro in a stochastic population, a st stochastic system using um, matrix projection models, um, around 50% of the variation is transients. Mm. Um, and in the past, people would have only analyzed uh, the, the asymptotic part of that, and it's 50% of the story. So this was, in a way, quite vindicating mm -hmm. to sort of see that across all of these different plant species, on average, at least half of um, the variation is actually these transients. So we should understand them, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, interesting. Are, are you taking this work forward? Since that, or have you been since that paper? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have started working on um, some things which, which do take this idea that um, life histories and transient dynamics should um, play together in some way. So my current work has been looking at how specifically aging, so different types of aging as an aspect of the life history, affect the transient dynamics. Um, and all of this is with a view to, in the future, closing that loop and seeing whether transient dynamics as uh, an, uh, a component of fitness are important for the evolution of life histories. Mm. So that's a little bit difficult to get at, but you know, the first step um, for me was to understand how the life history affects the transient dynamics. No, oh, interesting to see, see that work come, come forward. So I want to change track a little bit now. Um, you were an early career researcher. It's a label we give people at your yeah. stage. Um, you just recently started a faculty position. Yeah. So what sort of issues do early career researchers have that they have to try and deal with? So, I mean, there's a lot of the standard things. Um, needing to move around. Well, not needing to, but, you know. Be flexible so you can. Yeah, needing in know quotation marks to to move around and especially if you have a family so I'm actually quite lucky um, you know I don't have um, people connected to me I don't um, have a long-term partner I don't have children um, so I've been able to you know move around mm -hmm. wherever the wind takes me um, so but it, it's really difficult for some people but I have also said um, and I've even written blog posts about it I think um, is that it can also be difficult from that perspective in terms of um, not having a support network with you if you're um, moving around by yourself, finding new friends, yeah, yeah, that sort of right. thing. Yeah. Um, so it's not always easy. Um, I think the main thing that I might say, as, as someone who's just started a faculty position, is that I think nothing prepared me for um, the randomness of how you get faculty positions. Everyone, you can do all the right things to get one, but actually, you know, I got mine because I'm, I'm sure the planets aligned and I wanted to teach certain things. I said that in my application. It turned out, um, I, I didn't know, but it turned out they wanted someone to teach those exact things and they also liked my portfolio of research. Mm -hmm. And I think I was very lucky. You know, I, I really do. Um, because it just worked out really, really well for me. So nothing really prepared me for that, um, that fact that you can uh, do everything properly and still uh, not get where you might expect yourself to be. And I know incredibly good people who have become stuck, mm -hmm. you know, because for these exact reasons. Um, so, and I've always said, actually, that given the base of the pyramid, as it were, is 
becoming wider and wider, and we're training more and more PhD students and, and postdocs, but with no more faculty positions. I've always said at every stage of the career, um, we should be preparing people to um, and empowering them to choose to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because I have to admit, I wasn't really sure what else I might do, and that's not a very good situation um, to be in. I, I don't think that's changed at all. It's exactly how you I think, felt. It? Yeah. Yes, I mean, I applied for many jobs years ago before I got my first faculty job, and I, I, to this day, I don't know how I got that particular job. You know, it's, yeah. you know, versus other ones I didn't get. It's just it's the strangest thing. But um, so the question you don't want to answer, and ask anyway, how do you? How does one achieve a good work-life balance with all these stresses yeah. that you have to deal with? Uh, my, work, my work-life balance is not wonderful at the moment. I'm <laughs> finishing off my previous fellowship at the same time as having this faculty position, and goodness me, it is hard work. I yes, think it, it would have been hard work anyway, but I've landed myself in a very busy situation. Um, I think I have certain things which are kind of sacred, um, Although recently I haven't been as good at going, I, you know, I go to the gym and I do yoga, and it's the case that you know it doesn't matter what I'm doing, you know, when it comes to that time I go, and I think you know people, a lot of people do say the same thing, um, so maybe it's slightly cliche, but it, but it is true, is to just have those things which mm. you do, um, no matter what. Um, of course, sometimes it depends on what's going on. Um, in your life and what you have to get finished but for me that was that was uh, or is rather the answer no, I think it's very sensible I mean I pretty much do the same at 11.30 or noon I go to the gym yeah. or go to the pool yeah. every day yeah and days when someone schedules a meeting for me at noon, I get very angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it does happen, so you have to accept that too. But yeah, I think you're right. You've got to have some time when you're just going to step away. Yeah, I think um, people in general, there's this you know, term self-care. I think people in general are not very good at doing it. I'm certainly not very good at doing it. Um, but it is, a, it is a really important thing to be wary of um, in your career because... Ultimately, let's be honest, your career is going to suffer for it. You're not going to be as efficient. You're not going to be as happy if you don't do these things for yourself. So even taking that extra time out of work, um, if it makes you more efficient, is probably going to uh, mean that in the end uh, you achieve more in less time, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, good advice. All right, is there anything else you want to comment on uh, as we bring this to a close? Well, thank you for letting me be an, an AE at General Ecology. That's been a really good experience. Doing um, a great job. Experience. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, uh, well, I want to tell everyone to get involved with BES and come to all of the meetings because it's been amazing for me in, in my career. Good. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ian.